Chapter Ten, Part A of Roderick Hudson by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, The Cavaliere. There befell at last a couple of days during which Roland was unable to go to the hotel. Late in the evening of the second one, Roderick came into his room. In a few moments, he announced that he had finished the bust of his mother. And it's magnificent, he declared. It's one of the best things I've done. I believe it, said Roland. Never again talk to me about your inspiration being dead. Why not? This may be its last kick. I feel very tired. But it's a masterpiece, though I do say it. They tell us we owe so much to our parents. Well, I've paid the filial debt handsomely. He walked up and down the room a few moments, with the purpose of his visit evidently still undischarged. There's one thing more I want to say, he presently resumed. I feel as if I ought to tell you. He stopped before Roland, with his head high and his brilliant glance unclouded. Your invention is a failure. My invention? Roland repeated. Bringing out my mother and Mary. A failure? It's no use. They don't help me. Roland had fancied that Roderick had no more surprises for him, but he was now staring at him wide-eyed. They bore me, Roderick went on. Oh, oh, cried Roland. Listen, listen, said Roderick, with perfect gentleness. I am not complaining of them. I am simply stating a fact. I am very sorry for them. I am greatly disappointed. Have you given them a fair trial? Shouldn't you say so? It seems to me I have behaved beautifully. You have done very well. I have been building great hopes on it. I have done too well, then. After the first forty-eight hours my own hopes collapsed but I determined to fight it out, to stand within the temple, to let the spirit of the Lord descend. Do you want to know the result? Another week of it, and I shall begin to hate them. I shall want to poison them. Miserable boy! cried Roland. They are the loveliest of women. Very likely, but they mean no more to me than a Bible text to an atheist. I utterly fail, said Roland in a moment, to understand your relation to Miss Garland. Roderick shrugged his shoulders and let his hands drop at his sides. She adores me. That's my relation. And he smiled strangely. Have you broken your engagement? Broken it? You can't break a ray of moonshine. Have you absolutely no affection for her? Roderick placed his hand on his heart and held it there a moment. Dead, 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 he said at last. I wonder, Roland asked presently, if you begin to comprehend the beauty of Miss Garland's character. She is a person of the highest merit. Evidently, or I would not have cared for her. Has that no charm for you now? Oh, don't force a fellow to say rude things. Well, I can only say that you don't know what you are giving up. Roderick gave a quickened glance. Do you know so well? I admire her immeasurably. Roderick smiled, we may almost say sympathetically. You have not wasted time. Roland's thoughts were crowding upon him fast. If Roderick was resolute, why oppose him? If Mary was to be sacrificed, why in that way try to save her? There was another way. It only needed a little presumption to make it possible. Roland tried mentally to summon presumption to his aid, but whether it came or not had found conscience there before it. Conscience had only three words, but they were cogent. 
For her sake, for her sake, it dumbly murmured, and Rowland resumed his argument. I don't know what I wouldn't do, he said, rather than that Miss Garland should suffer. There is one thing to be said, Roderick answered reflectively. She is very strong. Well, then, if she's strong, believe that with a longer chance, a better chance, she will still regain your affection. Do you know what you ask? cried Roderick. Make love to a girl I hate. You hate? As her lover I should hate her. Listen to me, said Roland with vehemence. No, listen you to me. Do you really urge my marrying a woman who would bore me to death? I would let her know it in very good season, and then where would she be? Roland walked the length of the room a couple of times, and then stopped suddenly. Go your way, then. Say all this to her, not to me. To her? I am afraid of her. I want you to help me. My dear Roderick, said Roland, with an eloquent smile, I can help you no more. Roderick frowned, hesitated a moment, and then took his hat. Oh, well, he said, I am not so afraid of her as all that. And he turned as if to depart. Stop! cried Roland, as he laid his hand on the door. Roderick paused and stood waiting with his irritated brow. Come back, sit down there and listen to me. Of anything you were to say in your present state of mind, you would live most bitterly to repent. You don't know what you really think. You don't know what you really feel. You don't know your own mind. You don't do justice to Miss Garland. All this is impossible here under these circumstances. You're blind, you're deaf, you're under a spell. To break it, you must leave Rome. Leave Rome? Rome was never so dear to me. That's not of the smallest consequence. Leave it instantly. And where shall I go? Go to some place where you may be alone with your mother and Miss Garland. Alone? You will not come? Oh, if you desire it, I will come. Roderick, inclining his head a little, looked at his friend askance. I don't understand you, he said. I wish you liked Miss Garland either a little less or a little more. Roland felt himself colouring, but he paid no heed to Roderick's speech. "'You ask me to help you,' he went on. "'On these present conditions, I can do nothing. But if you will postpone all decision as to the continuance of your engagement a couple of months longer, and meanwhile leave Rome, leave Italy, I will do what I can to help you, as you say, in the event of your still wishing to break it.' "'I must do without your help, then. Your conditions are impossible.' I will leave Rome at the time I have always intended, at the end of June. My rooms and my mother's are taken till then, all my arrangements are made accordingly. Then I will depart, not before." "'You are not frank,' said Roland. Your real reason for staying has nothing to do with your rooms." Roderick's face betrayed neither embarrassment nor resentment. "'If I'm not frank, it's for the first time in my life. Since you know so much about my real reason, let me hear it. No, stop, he suddenly added. I won't trouble you. You are right. I have a motive. On the 24th of June, Miss Light is to be married. I take an immense interest in all that concerns her, and I wish to be present at her wedding. But you said the other day at St. Peter's that it was by no means certain her marriage would take place. Apparently I was wrong. The invitations, I am told, are going out. Roland felt that it would be utterly vain to remonstrate and that the only thing for him was to make the best terms possible. "'If I offer no further opposition to your waiting for Miss Light's marriage,' he said, 
Will you promise, meanwhile and afterwards, for a certain period, to defer to my judgment, to say nothing that may be a cause of suffering to Miss Garland? For a certain period? What period? Roderick demanded. Ah, don't drive so close a bargain. Don't you understand that I have taken you away from her, that I suffer in every nerve in consequence, and that I must do what I can to restore you? Do what you can, then, said Roderick gravely, putting out his hand. Do what you can. His tone and his handshake seemed to constitute a promise, and upon this they parted. Roderick's bust of his mother, whether or no it was a discharge of what he called the filial debt, was at least a most admirable production. Rowland, at the time it was finished, met Gloriani one evening, and this unscrupulous genius immediately began to ask questions about it. "'I am told our high-flying friend has come down,' he said. "'He has been doing a queer little old woman.' "'A queer little old woman!' Rowland exclaimed. "'My dear sir, she is Hudson's mother.' "'All the more reason for her being queer. It is a bust for terracotta, eh?' By no means. It is for marble. That's a pity. It was described to me as a charming piece of quaintness. A little, demure, thin-lipped old lady, with her head on one side and the prettiest wrinkles in the world. A sort of fairy godmother. Go and see it, and judge for yourself, said Rowland. No, I see I shall be disappointed. It's quite the other thing, the sort of thing they put into the Campo Santos. I wish that boy would listen to me an hour. But a day or two later Rowland met him again in the street, and as they were near proposed that they should adjourn to Roderick's studio. He consented, and on entering they found the young master. Roderick's demeanour to Gloriani was never conciliatory, and on this occasion supreme indifference was apparently all he had to offer. But Gloriani, like a genuine connoisseur, cared nothing for his manners, he cared only for his skill. In the bust of Mrs. Hudson there was something almost touching. It was an exquisite example of a ruling sense of beauty. The poor lady's small, neat, timorous face had certainly no great character, but Roderick had reproduced its sweetness, its mildness, its minuteness, its still maternal passion, with the most unerring art. It was perfectly unflattered, and yet admirably tender. It was the poetry of fidelity. Gloriani stood looking at it a long time, most intently. Roderick wandered away into the neighbouring room. "'I give it up,' said the sculptor at last. "'I don't understand it.' "'But you like it,' said Rowland. "'Like it? It's a pearl of pearls. Tell me this,' he added. "'Is he very fond of his mother? Is he a very good son?' And he gave Rowland a sharp look. "'Why, she adores him,' said Rowland, smiling." That's not an answer, but it's none of my business. Only if I, in his place, being suspected of having, what shall I call it, a cold heart, managed to do that piece of work, oh, oh, I should be called a pretty lot of names. Charlatan, poseur, arrangeur. But he can do as he chooses. My dear young man, I know you don't like me, he went on, as Roderick came back. It's a pity you are strong enough not to care about me at all. You are very strong." "'Not at all,' said Roderick curtly. "'I am very weak.' "'I told you last year that you wouldn't keep it up. I was a great ass. You will.' "'I beg your pardon. I won't,' retorted Roderick. 
though i'm a great ass all the same eh well call me what you will so long as you turn out this sort of thing i don't suppose it makes any particular difference but i should like to say now i believe in you roderick stood looking at him for a moment with a strange hardness in his face it flushed slowly and two glittering angry tears filled his eyes it was the first time roland had ever seen them there he saw them but once again poor gloriani he was sure had never in his life spoken with less of irony but to roderick there was evidently a sense of mockery in his profession of faith he turned away with a muttered passionate imprecation gloriani was accustomed to deal with complex problems but this time he was hopelessly puzzled what's the matter with him he asked simply roland gave a sad smile and touched his forehead genius i suppose gloriani sent another parting lingering look at the bust of mrs hudson well it's deuced perfect it's deuced simple i do believe in him he said but i'm glad i'm not a genius it makes he added with a laugh as he looked for roderick to wave him good-bye and saw his back still turned it makes a more sociable studio roland had purchased as he supposed temporary tranquillity for mary garland but his own humour in these days was not especially peaceful he was attempting in a certain sense to lead the ideal life and he found it at the least not easy the days passed but brought with them no official invitation to miss light's wedding he occasionally met her and he occasionally met prince casamassima but always separately never together they were apparently taking their happiness in the inexpressible manner proper to people of social eminence roland continued to see madame grandoni for whom he felt a confirmed affection he always talked to her with frankness but now he made her a confidant of his hidden dejection roderick and roderick's concerns had been a common theme with him and it was in the natural course to talk of mrs hudson's arrival and miss garland's fine smile madame grandoni was an intelligent listener and she lost no time in putting his case for him in a nutshell at one moment you tell me the girl is plain she said the next you tell me she's pretty i will invite them and i shall see for myself but one thing is very clear you are in love with her roland for all answer glanced round to see that no one heard her more than that she added you have been in love with her for these two years there was that certain something about you i knew you were a mild sweet fellow but you had a touch of it more than was natural why didn't you tell me at once you would have saved me a great deal of trouble and poor augusta blanchard too and herewith madame grandoni communicated a pertinent fact augusta blanchard and mr leavenworth were going to make a match the young lady had been staying for a month at albano and mr leavenworth had been dancing attendance the event was a matter of course roland who had been lately reproaching himself with the failure of attention to miss blanchard's doings made some such observation but you did not find it so cried his hostess it was a matter of course perhaps that mr leavenworth who seems to be going about europe with the sole view of picking up furniture for his home as he calls it should think miss blanchard a very handsome piece but it was not a matter of course or needn't have been that she should have been willing to become a sort of superior table ornament she would have accepted you if you had tried you are supposing the insupposable said roland she never gave me a particle of encouragement 
What would you have had her do? The poor girl did her best, and I am sure that when she accepted Mr. Leavenworth she thought of you. She thought of the pleasure her marriage would give me. Ay, pleasure indeed. She is a thoroughly good girl, but she has her little grain of feminine spite like the rest. Well, he's richer than you, and she will have what she wants. But before I forgive you, I must wait and see this new arrival, what you call her, Miss Garland. If I like her, I will forgive you. If I don't, I shall always bear you a grudge. Rowland answered that he was sorry to forfeit any advantage she might offer him, but that his exculpatory passion for Miss Garland was a figment of her fancy. Miss Garland was engaged to another man, and he himself had no claims. Well, then, said Madame Grandoni, if I like her, we'll have it that you ought to be in love with her. If you fail in this, it will be a double misdemeanor. The man she's engaged to doesn't care a straw for her. Leave me alone, and I'll tell her what I think of you. As to Christina Light's marriage, Madame Grandoni could make no definite statement. The young girl of late had made her several flying visits, in the intervals of the usual pre-matrimonial shopping and dress-fitting. She had spoken of the event with a toss of her head, as a matter which, with a wise old friend who viewed things in their essence, she need not pretend to treat as a solemnity. It was for Prince Casamassima to do that. It is what they call a marriage of reason, she once said. That means, you know, a marriage of madness. What have you said in the way of advice? Roland asked. Very little, but that little has favoured the prince. I know nothing of the mysteries of the young lady's heart. It may be a gold mine, but at any rate it's a mine, and it's a long journey down into it. But the marriage itself is an excellent marriage. It's not only brilliant, but it's safe. I think Christina is quite capable of making it a means of misery, but there is no position that would be sacred to her. Casamassima is an irreproachable young man. There is nothing against him but that he is a prince. It is not often, I fancy, that a prince has been put through his paces at this rate. No one knows the wedding day. The cards of invitation have been printed half a dozen times over, with a different date. Each time Christina has destroyed them. There are people in Rome who are furious at the delay. They want to get away. They are in a dreadful fright about the fever. But they are dying to see the wedding, and if the day were fixed they would make their arrangements to wait for it. I think it very possible that after having them kept a month and produced a dozen cases of malaria, Christina will be married at midnight by an old friar with simply the legal witnesses. It is true, then, that she has become a Catholic. So she tells me. One day she got up in the depths of despair, at her wit's end, I suppose, in other words, for a new sensation. Suddenly it occurred to her that the Catholic Church might, after all, hold the key, might give her what she wanted. She sent for a priest, he happened to be a clever man, and he contrived to interest her. She put on a black dress and a black lace veil, and looking handsomer than ever she rustled into the Catholic Church. The prince, who was very devout, and who had her heresy sorely on his conscience, was thrown into an ecstasy. May she never have a caprice that pleases him less. Roland had already asked Madame Grandoni what, to her perception, was the present state of affairs between Christina and Roderick, and he now repeated his question with some earnestness of apprehension. "'The girl is so deucedly dramatic,' he said, "'that I don't know what coup de théâtre she may have in store for us. 
Such a stroke was her turning Catholic. Such a stroke would be her some day making her courtesy to a disappointed world as Princess Casamassima, married at midnight in her bonnet. She might do, she may do, something that would make even more starers. I'm prepared for anything. You mean that she might elope with your sculptor, eh? I'm prepared for anything. Do you mean that he's ready? Do you think that she is? They're a precious pair. I think this. You by no means exhaust the subject when you say that Christina is dramatic. It's my belief that in the course of her life she will do a certain number of things from pure, disinterested passion. She's immeasurably proud, and if that is often a fault in a virtuous person, it may be a merit in a vicious one. She needs to think well of herself. She knows a fine character, easily, when she meets one. She hates to suffer by comparison, even though the comparison is made by herself alone. And when the estimate she may have made of herself grows vague, she needs to do something to give it definite, impressive form. What she will do in such a case will be better or worse, according to her opportunity. But I imagine it will generally be something that will drive her mother to despair, something of the sort usually termed unworldly. Roland, as he was taking his leave after some further exchange of opinions, rendered Miss Light the tribute of a deeply meditative sigh. "'She has bothered me half to death,' he said, "'but somehow I can't manage, as I ought to hate her. I admire her half the time, and a good part of the rest I pity her.' "'I think I most pity her,' said Madame Grandoni. This enlightened woman came the next day to call upon the two ladies from Northampton. She carried their shy affections by storm, and made them promise to drink tea with her on the evening of the morrow. Her visit was an era in the life of poor Mrs. Hudson, who did nothing but make sudden desultory allusions to her for the next thirty-six hours. "'To think of her being a foreigner!' she would exclaim, after much intent reflection over her knitting. "'She speaks so beautifully!' Then, in a little while, "'She wasn't so much dressed as you might have expected.' Did you notice how easy it was in the waist? I wonder if that's the fashion. Or, she's very old to wear a hat. I should never dare to wear a hat. Or, did you notice her hands? Very pretty hands for such a stout person. A great many rings, but nothing very handsome. I suppose they are hereditary. Or, she's certainly not handsome, but she's very sweet-looking. I wonder why she doesn't have something done to her teeth. Roland also received a summons to Madame Grandoni's tea-drinking, and went betimes, as he had been requested. He was eagerly desirous to lend his mute applause to Mary Garland's debut in the Roman social world. The two ladies had arrived with Roderick, silent and careless, in attendance. Miss Blanchard was also present, escorted by Mr. Leavenworth, and the party was completed by a dozen artists of both sexes and various nationalities. It was a friendly and easy assembly, like all Madame Grandoni's parties, and in the course of the evening there was some excellent music. People played and sang for Madame Grandoni on easy terms, who elsewhere were not to be heard for the asking. She herself was a superior musician, and singers found it a privilege to perform to her accompaniment. Roland talked to various persons, but for the first time in his life, his attention visibly wandered. He could not keep his eyes off Mary Garland. Madame Grandoni had said that he sometimes spoke of her as pretty and sometimes as plain. 
Tonight, if he had had occasion to describe her appearance, he would have called her beautiful. She was dressed more than he had ever seen her, it was becoming, and gave her a deeper color and an ampler presence. Two or three persons were introduced to her who were apparently witty people, for she sat listening to them with her brilliant natural smile. Roland, from an opposite corner, reflected that he had never varied in his appreciation of Miss Blanchard's classic contour, but that somehow to-night it impressed him hardly more than an effigy stamped upon a coin of low value. Roderick could not be accused of rancor, for he had approached Mr. Leavenworth with unstudied familiarity, and lounging against the wall with hands in pockets, was discoursing to him with candid serenity. Now that he had done him an impertinence, he evidently found him less intolerable. Mr. Leavenworth stood stirring his tea and silently opening and shutting his mouth, without looking at the young sculptor, like a large, drowsy dog snapping at flies. Rowland had found it disagreeable to be told Miss Blanchard would have married him for the asking, and he would have felt some embarrassment in going to speak to her if his modesty had not found incredulity so easy. The facile side of a union with Miss Blanchard had never been present to his mind. It had struck him as a thing, in all ways, to be compassed with a great effort. He had half an hour's talk with her, a farewell talk, as it seemed to him, a farewell not to a real illusion, but to the idea that for him, in that matter, there could ever be an acceptable pis-aller. He congratulated Miss Blanchard upon her engagement, and she received his compliment with a touch of primness. But she was always a trifle prim, even when she was quoting Mrs. Browning and Georges Sand, and this harmless defect did not prevent her responding on this occasion that Mr. Leavenworth had a glorious heart. Roland wished to manifest an extreme regard, but toward the end of the talk his zeal relaxed, and he fell a-thinking that a certain natural ease in a woman was the most delightful thing in the world. There was Christina Light, who had too much, and here was Miss Blanchard, who had too little, and there was Mary Garland, in whom the quality was wholly uncultivated, who had just the right amount. He went to Madame Grandoni in an adjoining room, where she was pouring out tea. "'I will make you an excellent cup,' she said, "'because I have forgiven you.' He looked at her, answering nothing, but he swallowed his tea with great gusto, and a slight deepening of his colour, by all of which one would have known that he was gratified. In a moment he intimated that, in so far as he had sinned, he had forgiven himself." She is a lovely girl, said Madame Grandoni. There is a great deal there. I have taken a great fancy to her, and she must let me make a friend of her. She is very plain, said Roland slowly, very simple, very ignorant. Which, being interpreted, means she is very handsome, very subtle, and has read hundreds of volumes on winter evenings in the country. You are a veritable sorceress, cried Roland. You frighten me away. As he was turning to leave her, there arose above the hum of voices in the drawing-room the sharp, grotesque note of a barking dog. Their eyes met in a glance of intelligence. End of chapter 10, part A